Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a talk by Amor Tolls from a literary arts special event on February 1st, 2023. Tolls is the author of three novels, including the huge international bestseller, A Gentleman in Moscow. He joined us to talk about his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway, also a best-selling novel, which began for Tolls a full 20 years before its publication with a simple initial image, a warden driving a young man home from a juvenile detention center. From this jumping off point, Tolls dives into describing his writing process and how he brings to life the large cast of characters that populate his books and the complex plots that are so satisfying. I will add that there are very few writers who talk with such clarity about their own process. Tolls also takes time to dwell in the historic context of the novel, the American mid-century, by talking about the extraordinary life of Carl Fisher, an entrepreneur who, among many other accomplishments, developed the first transcontinental highway called, yes, the Lincoln Highway. Tolls showed some slides during the talk, so you'll hear the audience react to some of the visuals, but you won't miss anything, as he does a wonderful job talking about what's on screen. After his talk, Tolls and I sat down for an extended conversation. Here's Tolls. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's really great to be back in Portland. I want to thank Larry Arts for inviting me back, and I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, really, it means a lot to me. Um, I want to start with a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, as Andy mentioned, we're going to have a Q&A. If your question is not covered during the Q&A, you can always uh, reach me by going to amortolls.com, and if you go to the contact page, uh, your questions or comments come straight to me. Now, this is an amazing thing about the modern era, that this can happen. It has its drawbacks. <laughs> okay. And uh, in particular, uh, at this point, when a book of mine comes out, usually it takes about seven days uh, for the corrections to start rolling in. Now, some of these are very helpful, and some of them are not so helpful. And to sort of give you a little flavor for the spectrum there, I thought I'd share a couple with you. Um, so, you know, here's an example of an email I received uh, shortly after the book came out. Dear Mr. Tolls, you start too many sentences with I-N-G words. Now, that's not helpful. But the best part about this uh, email was the last sentence. Looking forward to your next book. Okay. All right, so you know, th this, uh, this next one requires a little bit of a setup. So late in the Lincoln Highway, our hero Emmett and his buddies are sort of have a fancy dinner in a fine home in a suburb of New York. And things go awry during the dinner. And as a result, late at night, Emmett finds himself alone in the kitchen, cleaning up as sort of an act of penance. Uh, and this is uh, the email that I received from Karen of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Karen writes, on page 477, you describe how Emmett was doing the dishes, saying that Emmett first washed the plates, then the crystal, then the pots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As the winner of the 1973 Betty Crocker Future Homemaker Award, <laughs> at my high school, I can tell you with some authority that the proper way to wash dishes is first the crystal, then the plates, and finally the pots. Thank you, Karen from Wisconsin. So here's a favorite, and, and to set this up, uh, earlier in the novel, uh, 
Duchess and Wooly borrow Emmett's car, and they're headed east on the Lincoln Highway towards New York, and they go through uh, Iowa, and just outside of Ames, they run out of gas. So it's early in the morning, Duchess gets out of the car, he looks up the road, and in the distance he sees a liquor store, and he thinks to himself, well, that's probably not open yet, given the hour of day, so if I could break into the liquor store, uh, I might find some money in the till, uh, or barring that, I could steal a couple of bottles of whiskey and give those to the gas station attendant in exchange for gas. So, uh, this is from Jane of uh, Pequot Lake, Minnesota. There were no liquor stores in Ames, Iowa in 1954. <laughs> yeah. Hard liquor and wine could only be purchased at the county seat. This meant that my parents, who were heavy drinkers, <laughs> had to drive all the way to Boone. Every week, my mother and I would make the drive there to buy a case of Gallo wine, some Gallo vermouth, and a no-name bourbon. When you paid, the clerk would produce a large ledger where you had to write down your purchases and sign it. Uh, the P.S. is my favorite part here. P.S. I lived across the street from Miss Evans, my fourth grade teacher. She told my mom that Mr. Harlan, our principal, would review the liquor store log every week to see how much and what his teachers were drinking. Now, uh, the Lincoln Highway has been out for a little more than a year, and so uh, we are kind of moving beyond the corrections phase, everybody. <laughs> so you don't need to send those in anymore, but if you would like to share with me your parents' drinking habits, <laughs> you are welcome to do so. All right. Uh, I began writing fiction as a kid, and I wrote fiction in high school and in college and in graduate school. And uh, over the course of my life, I've had many ideas for stories and for novels. And most commonly, when an idea comes to me for a story or a novel, it comes in a very simple form. It's really a, a, a conceit, a notion, that I usually could uh, describe in a sentence. Like, uh, a guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. And that's literally where I started uh, with the project that eventually became A Gentleman in Moscow. Now, when I have a notion like that, uh, that little sort of sentence, usually it comes very quickly with some attachments. And I mean like in a matter of minutes. So in that case, right away I thought, oh great, it could be in Russia. And uh, he could be an aristocrat who is sentenced to house arrest in the fancy hotel across the street from the Kremlin. And the story could span from the revolution right to the Cold War. You know, I kind of knew all that in a matter of minutes. Then what happens is, if an idea like that grabs me, is over a period of years, I will imagine the story in, in every detail. And I will fill notebooks uh, with uh, trying to understand, to visualize everything that happens in the story, uh, all the characters and their backgrounds, their psychology, all the settings, a lot of the poetics, all of that will be sort of mapped out in my notebooks over a multi-year time frame. And once I know the story from beginning to end in great detail, then I will outline it and start the writing process. So this is the way that I will tend to work. And uh, Lincoln Highway is the same thing. I think for those of you who have read it, you could guess what the premise was, in essence, where I started, which is that about 20 years ago, I had this notion of an honorable young man uh, who's done uh, time in a juvenile prison uh, being driven home by the warden um, and him thinking that he's going to start his life anew only to discover when the warden drives away that two of his friends from the prison have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. Now this is the image that I began with. And again, right away that came with certain attachments. You know, right away I thought, oh yeah, uh, he'll be returning to a farm in the Midwest, uh, it'll be the 1950s, uh, the whole story will only last 10 days. Uh, right away I knew that uh, his mother was long gone and that uh, his father has died while he's doing time and the family farm is in bankruptcy. I knew that his intention would be to pick up his younger brother and head to California but the two friends in the trunk of the car would convince him or you know, sort of tug him uh, towards New York instead. 
Now, as I say, I knew all this in a matter of minutes. What I did not know was when they drove out of the farm and instead of taking a left and heading west, they took a right and headed east, I did not know what road they were going to travel on. And if you go back and look at my notebooks, the early notebooks for, the, for this novel, uh, that road is referred to as Road X. You know, that's all it is, and that was fine as I kind of began to develop the story. Now, but at a certain point, uh, you get to the stage where I need to actually know what that road is in reality. Because that may influence what happens, may influence what they see, it may influence some tonal factors, what, what have you. So, I broke out a map of America, and I began looking at Nebraska uh, very closely to try to find the right road that would be heading east towards New York. And eventually I said, okay, that's it. That's perfect. Uh, from this small town, uh, Route 30. But under Route 30, in small print, it said, uh, formerly known as the Lincoln Highway. And I thought to myself, you know, what the heck is that? You know, I'd never heard of it. And so I went and did, uh, you know, some looking into it uh, quickly. And everything that I began to discover about the Lincoln Highway was amazing to me. I mean, I just thought, what an incredible uh, story, what an incredible thing. And not only that, but it clearly, right off the bat, resonated uh, with so many elements of the novel that I planned to write that I immediately changed uh, the name of the novel to the Lincoln Highway and began to integrate uh, the, that road into the story. Um, so what was it? about the history of the Lincoln Highway that, uh, that so struck me as resonant with the themes of the book. And to understand that, uh, we, we have to kind of go back a step to this guy. This is Carl Fisher. Uh, Carl Fisher was born outside of Indianapolis in 1874. And he is a classic American success story. Uh, born into a very impoverished uh, family, his father abandoned uh, his family when he was quite young, so at the age of 12, he dropped out of school in order to make money to support his mother and his siblings. Um, from that moment uh, forward, his entire life was about motion. His first job at the age of 12 is he would go into uh, Indianapolis to the Union Station, and when a train would come into the station, he would board the train and sell uh, newspapers, magazines, tobacco, candy, as quickly as he could, and then jump off the train as it was pulling out of the station. That's job number one. Now, uh, in his early teens, the bicycle is coming of age in the United States, and he becomes a, a fanatic for the bike, loves it, uh, races bikes, rides bikes. So, at the age of 17, he ends up opening one of the first bicycle repair shops in Indianapolis. A few years after that, the car is coming of age in the United States. And he immediately becomes a fan of the automobile. And uh, he races uh, cars in a primitive way. Uh, he breaks, actually, one of the early land speed records uh, in a car. Okay, but, so, as he falls in love with cars, of course, he ends up opening one of the first automotive repair, uh, 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 automotive repair garages in Indianapolis, right next door to the bicycle repair shop. And as a, someone operating an a automotive garage, doing repairs, he has a, a front seat, excuse me, a front seat on uh, what goes wrong in cars. How do they get in accidents? And what he figures out very quickly is that a major problem with the early automobiles was that they did not have good enough lighting at night, especially in bad weather. So in uh, 1904, at the age of uh, 30, he licenses technology from the leading manufacturer of uh, lights for lighthouses and buoys, and he applies it to the automobile, and within a few years, almost every car in the United States has his Presto uh, light as a headlamp. And uh, he's a very, uh, doing very well. Um, now, in uh, 1911, Union Carbide steps forward and buys him out. And so at the age of 37, he finds himself married, without children, retired, and worth about $150 million in today's terms. Um, now, as I said, Carl is really a guy who's all about motion, his life. And so uh, he's a restless soul, and he does not take well to retirement. You know, he's not going to sit on the couch and do the crossword like me. So the first thing uh, he does is he takes up uh, his old hobby of car racing. 
And at the stage, at this stage in America, you know, we're talking like 1913, 1914, uh, car racing is one guy would challenge another guy and they'd go out to a dirt road and they'd race. And that was the whole game. And Carl thinks to himself, you know, if there was an oval with a graded surface that was paved, I bet uh, we could attract serious racers from a wide uh, you know, part of the country to come and race in a more serious fashion. So, Carl builds the Indianapolis International Motor Speedway. And sure enough, having built the Motor Speedway, uh, people are, serious drivers are showing up from the Northeast, from the Midwest, to come and race each other on the track. So, Carl's looking at this and he says, you know, now that all these serious drivers are coming here to race on our track, on my track, um, I bet if we had a major race with a big purse and we built stands, I bet the people would come to watch. So he launches a little thing known as the Indy 500. And the first year, 80,000 Americans come to see it. Um, now, at this time, uh, Carl and his wife are spending their winters in Florida. That's uh, where they vacation. And uh, they're, doing, they're going to Miami every winter. At this time, Miami, the city of Miami is built sort of right up to the shores of the Biscayne Bay. And then you have the Biscayne Bay. On the opposite side of the Biscayne Bay, you have a, a narrow barrier island. And beyond the barrier island is the Atlantic Ocean. And so the entire city of Miami is there on the, on the shores of the Biscayne Bay. Now, the first thing that Carl does when he starts hanging out in Miami, of course, is he goes and buys a high-speed motorboat. And he spends his free time zipping back and forth on the Biscayne Bay. And while he's doing this, he notices at some point that there is a bridge which begins in Miami, goes halfway across the Biscayne Bay, and stops. And he becomes intrigued. Obviously, the bridge was meant to ultimately go to the barrier island. So he goes out to the barrier island in his boat to investigate. And what he finds is, is that the island is owned by an old man, a farmer. And the old man has planted uh, avocado fields all across the barrier island. And he was the one who was building the bridge because his plan was to grow the avocados on the barrier island and then drive them over the Biscayne Bay to sell them in Miami to the hotels and restaurants. That was the plan. But halfway through building the bridge, he ran out of money. Now, as the farmer is giving Carl a tour of the barrier island, Carl's thinking to himself, you know, this is a pretty nice place to have a vacation home. Because on the barrier island, it's because you have water on both sides and you're, you're close to the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it's about 10 degrees cooler than it was in Miami with very pleasant breezes. And then you had the Atlantic Ocean views and the views looking back at the city of Miami. Uh, and you then had the opportunity to swim in the Atlantic Ocean. So he thought, you know, this is clearly the place to be. So he tells the old guy, I'll tell you what, I will finish building your bridge in exchange for a piece of your island. And the old man says, done. So Carl builds the bridge, finishes building the bridge, and the old man gives him uh, a mile wide of the barrier island from shore to shore. Um, first thing then Carl does is he has a part of the Biscayne Bay dredged uh, so that the approach to uh, the island can be uh, more efficient. And then uh, he takes a little corner of his large new plot of land and he builds this. Which is the Flamingo Hotel. Now, as soon as he builds it, everybody realizes that he was absolutely right, that this is the place you want to be. So, uh, people start building hotels uh, along this stretch. Uh, they're building uh, fancy new homes, uh, establishing restaurants. Uh, Carl, of course, owns a, a chunk of the land, and so he's selling that and creates a whole new fortune for himself. Um, yes, the avocado farmer gets rich as well. And this development, which grows sort of overnight, we now call Miami Beach. That's what Miami Beach is, is Carl's development. Um, now, as Carl is going back and forth from Indianapolis to Miami in these years, one of the things that uh, really begins to bother him is the state of American roads. Uh, at the time, there was about 2 million miles of roads in the United States and 95% of them were not paved. 
And this meant that if you were in a primitive you know, early car and there was rain, you were stuck. Uh, you could not proceed. Now, but in addition, uh, there was a complication for long distance travel. And that was that the roads in the United States had not really been designed for long distance travel. Um, they, the way they developed uh, is very naturally by spider webbing out of townships. You take a town center where you'd have the train station and the bank and the hardware store and the courthouse, and the roads would grow out of the town, spider webbing into the countryside to where people lived and to the farms and to the light manufacturing and that sort of thing. That's what roads were for, this journey from the middle of town out into the countryside uh, to go to the farms or to home. Uh, they weren't designed to go long distances. And so if you wanted to go from, say, Boston to Denver, there was no road on which to do that. Um, if you wanted to do that, you would take the train. That's what trains were for, whether you wanted to travel yourself or send goods. Um, so, and this, uh, Carl felt, was, uh, was a problem. And in fact, uh, you have to kind of picture, if you wanted to drive a car across the country at this time, say from New York uh, to California, um, there would be large stretches, you know, and when you got to the Midwest, 100-mile, 200-mile stretches in which there's no gas station, there's no hotel, there's no, uh, you know, restaurants. It's just open land for the most part. So if you wanted to drive across the country, what you actually had to do is load your vehicle with extra gas, water, tents, food, repair parts. And if you look at the photographs of the early travelers across the country by car, they basically look like polar expeditions, not vacations. And Carl felt that this was wrong. From a very patriotic standpoint, he thought that there should be a paved road that crossed the country so that American citizens could drive in their cars and see this great nation of ours from sea to shining sea. That was his vision. Now, at the time, the federal government had no interest in roads in the United States. It wasn't involved in them in the least. Um, and so, Carl decides to do it himself. He's going to build the road himself. Um, as an entrepreneur, uh, he starts to go out and raise money for the project. So uh, he's going up and down the East Coast and across the Midwest to the major cities doing a barnstorming tour where he's making the case for creating this coast-to-coast uh, -coast road. Uh, he convinces Teddy Roosevelt to give him money. He convinces uh, Thomas Alva Edison to give him money. He convinces the heads of Goodyear and Packard Carr to give him money. The Boy Scouts get involved and start raising him money. Um, but eventually, over a multi-year time frame, he raises enough money from the citizens of America that he's got a multi-million dollar war chest, and he goes out and he builds uh, the road, and here is you know, what, it, what it looked like. Um, the Lincoln Highway. Going begins in Times Square of New York City, and in fact, if you go to 42nd Street and Broadway in New York today, there is still a green-style New York street sign that indicates the beginning of the Lincoln Highway. And it went almost straight across uh, the nation, going through 12 contiguous states, ending up in uh, San Francisco, uh, in, in the park in San Francisco that overlooks the Pacific Ocean, um, Lincoln Park. Uh, so this is his creation. Now, I mentioned how difficult it used to be to drive across the country. And to put this in perspective, uh, in the year that Carl set about building the Lincoln Highway, in that year of about 1915, uh, only 150 people tried to drive across the United States by car. Within five years, 20,000 Americans would do it every year. Right? So it was a major change in the way that Americans could see their own country. And without a question, immediately, the Lincoln Highway became the most famous road in America, and it stayed the most famous road in America throughout the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, into the early 1950s. Now, like many inventions, great inventions, uh, the Lincoln Highway sowed the seed of its own demise in this rather interesting way. And what happened was that you have to go back to 1919, the end of the First World War. And with the war concluded, uh, the leaders of the American military began to get concerned that the citizenry of the United States would lose interest in maintaining a powerful defense. 
uh, you know, we had in, to fight the First World War. Uh, we had built all this incredible equipment, you know, planes, boats, tanks, uh, arms of various kinds. We trained people, established forts across the country, uh, you know, trained uh, na you know, Navy, Marines, the Army, etc., the Air Force. And the leaders of the military were concerned that now that we were at peace, the American citizens would say, well, now the war's over, enough of that. And it would all kind of begin to fade away. Now, there was a, a practical concern there because they were concerned about the safety of the country. And there was also a self-serving factor, right? They, they wanted to have the budgets to serve their own careers, right? Um, so they put their heads together and they decide, all right, what we're going to do is we are going to showcase, we're going to have, after the war, uh, we're going to showcase the uh, American might, the advances in our technology, uh, the strength of our soldiers, um, and we're going to do so in what was basically a PR stunt, is that they're going to take a convoy, and they're going to have the convoy start at the White House, and uh, go across uh, the country, stopping in you know, major cities uh, to showcase American might. And, and this is actually what the convoy was going to include. The convoy was made up of about 80 vehicles, including heavy-duty trucks, fuel tankers, artillery tractors, an aerial searchlight truck, armed reconnaissance cars, ambulances, and motorcycles, collectively manned by 35 officers and 260 enlisted men. Now, when they launch the convoy, and this is what they do, right, is they leave the White House and they start heading north with the intention of taking left and going to the West Coast, of course, they take the Lincoln Highway because it's really the only way that they could have done it. And off they go with a big, you know, uh, band playing and flags waving, and the entire thing turns out to be a total fiasco. And the reason it's a fiasco is because, you know, the Lincoln Highway, yes, is a paved road that crossed the country, but it wasn't really built for a convoy like this. With this heavy-duty equipment, you still didn't have restaurants, gas stations, hotels along the way. Um, and so the convoy was constantly getting slowed down, stuck. It was failing to arrive in cities that were expecting them, and, you know, in this big fanfare. It's a complete disaster from a PR standpoint. And now it just so happens that one of the officers who is in charge of this endeavor and who's on the convoy as it's having trouble crossing the nation is a young lieutenant colonel recently returned from the First World War named Dwight David Eisenhower. And Eisenhower never forgets it. And 35 years later, as the president of the United States, he says, one of the first goals of my administration is to build a highway system that spans the United States. And uh, he does it, and here it is. If you can't read the top, what it says is the National System of Interstate and Defense Highways. Because that's what it was called. That's how they sold it to the American people. They said, this is essential to the safety of the nation. And they're right in many ways at the time, because picture, if you're gonna be attacked you don't know if the attack is going to come on the Pacific Ocean, on the Atlantic Ocean, from Mexico, from Canada, two locations at once. And so how would you move the equipment, the people, you know, the, 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 the military, to respond to the risk of invasion in a rapid fashion in order to, to protect the country? And the only way you could do it is if you had an elaborate network that looked like this. So that at any given, starting at any one point, you could get to at any other point at a relatively fast fashion. And of course, these had to be, these were not uh, narrow. These were multi-lane highways uh, that went, you know, in straight lines, you know, bypassing little towns in many cases. Um, and these are the highway system that really established the future of highways as we know them now in the United States. And as soon as it was built, it began to make the old roads uh, obsolete such as the Lincoln Highway. And uh, the Lincoln Highway quickly fell from use and from the popular imagination. And today, the Lincoln Highway looks like this. There it is. That's a picture I took myself, you know, two summers ago. Now, everything that I just told you, most of what I just told you, is not in the book. Right? It's not in the book. Uh, because the Lincoln Highway is a novel. It's not a history book or a Wikipedia entry, you know. And at its center are individuals. Now, most importantly, at the center of this story are uh, a group of 18 or 19-year-olds, roughly speaking. The hero, Emmett, uh, his two friends from the prison, Duchess and Wooly, 
Uh, they have another friend, an African-American uh, young man named Townhouse, uh, Emmett's neighbor, Sally. They're all about 18, 19 years old. And, uh, and that has a significant impact on the shape of the narrative and what it means. And that is because the age of 18 is very unusual and unique in the course of human life. And I think this is true uh, for anybody today, anywhere in the world, and for actually all of time. And what makes the age of 18 so unusual is that between the age of, let's say, zero and 16, we are receiving constant instruction. We're receiving instruction from our parents, receiving instruction from school, receiving instructions from the church, from our communities. And that instruction comes in like literal instruction or it comes as narratives, it comes as myths, it comes as stories, it comes as you know, uh, sermons. It's just coming at all the time. And between the age of zero and 16, we tend to receive that pretty passively. Uh, receiving it, uh, assuming, you know, taking it at face value that, that we should listen and that we should take it seriously. And, and now of course, what this flow of information is all about that we receive during that phase of our life is that it's trying to uh, give us a sense of how the world works. Uh, it's trying to give us a sense of, of what's right and wrong, of how we should behave, of what we should expect of others and what we should expect of ourselves. You know, this is all part of what that instruction is about. Now, then, somewhere around the age of 17 or 18, we all go through a, basically an awakening. And the awakening is our realization that all this stuff we've been told for the previous 16 years, we don't have to take any of it at face value. We don't have to believe any of it, accept any of it, follow any of it. And in fact, what's really important is that we, as individuals, have both the liberty and the responsibility to make these decisions on our own. And this is really what's at the heart of this novel, The Lincoln Highway, is that we have this group of young people around the age of 18 who are just beginning to go through the process in their lives of deciding what they think America is, what they think uh, is right and wrong, uh, what they think they are capable of, and ultimately deciding what and who they want to become. This is what I think the book is about in many ways. Now, having said all that, I would like to invite Andrew back on stage so that we can address your questions. And if you don't have any questions, I will ask them myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. This is sort of a book about fathers and sons. And I wondered if you could talk about, because you talked about the awakening that all these characters are going through, but they're very much in relationship, especially to their fathers in this book, but also to their mothers. Can you talk about why and how that theme came up for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question and an interesting observation. It is true that the, a lot of, uh, the story only lasts 10 days. And for the most part, the adults, the parents, are not physically present in this narrative. But uh, their presence is very heavily felt, I think, both by the reader and more importantly by the characters. Because at this point in their lives, uh, they are all grappling with it. this description I was making earlier about kind of the shift from what you've inherited to your independence. But when you make that shift, um, a lot of that is tied up with what did your parents tell you or how did they live their lives? Do you want to live your life just like your parent or do you want to avoid living your life like your parent? Um, is your sense of what is right and wrong shaped by what they thought was right and wrong? You know, and, and that may be through their sins as well as their virtues, right? And so, so all the characters are grappling with, just to some degree, this, this sort of weighing as they move into their independent stage, grappling with uh, what was the role their parents played in their individual lives and shaping them and shaping their sense of the way the world works. And you know, so now I'll, I'll make a quick uh, sort of side here, which is that um, uh, I, I, maybe I was, I must have been about uh, three quarters of the way of writing, th writing this book. And you know, maybe 80% of the way through. And um, as I was doing it, and I mean, I've been, and they're sort of writing about these 10 days in 1954, these, for these young uh, Americans. Um, I suddenly had this moment, I was like, you know, it's kind of funny, but 
I bet my dad was probably about 18 in 1954, come to think of it. He had passed away a few years before. And so, you know, I did the math. I you know, went back and looked at his birthday and did the math, and sure enough, he turned 18 in 1954. And as soon as I, I recognized that, I realized, oh, you know, that makes so much sense. Because, um, and, and one of the interesting things I think about it is that we are so heavily shaped by what happens uh, in the world between the time that we're, say, you know, 6 and 16 or 6 and 18, as we go through that phase of, you know, 6 to 18, what's happening in the world politically, what's happening in the world economically, what's happening in the world culturally, forever imprints on us and affects how we see the world forever going forward, right? And, you know, so our, you know, if we had parents who were born in the Depression, you know, it's in the 1970s, they're still saving string. Like, you know, like, what are you going to do with all that string, you know? But, but it's, that, it's that early experience of the Depression which continues to influence them. And so, I, on the one hand, well, the observation is that I think that, that that moment in our lives, that decade between when we're 6 and 16, has this huge influence on us throughout our lives. But the, the decade that has the second biggest influence on us is the decade in which our parents were 6 to 16. Because that's the one that shaped them, and that they're constantly telling, it's influencing how they describe the world to us, right? And so, as soon as I was, as I say, I was thinking about that, it made so much sense that I had picked this moment to tell this story around when my father turned 18, because I was, I was, I knew a lot about that moment. I'm not a research-driven writer, and so I'm drawing on my imagination, but I knew much more about that moment in American history than I would have thought consciously, because I had heard so much about its influence through, uh, you know, my, uh, what my father had told me over the years, or my mother for that matter. Father and son story, yeah. to some degree. This is a question from, we got by email. Can you talk about the craft decision to write the Duchess chapters in the first person, but the others in third, and maybe a, a wider question about why there's multiple voices and alternating voices in the book? Uh, okay, so uh, the story is told from eight perspectives. The novel's told from eight perspectives. and. Uh, I mentioned that I have this multi-year design process that I go through, and, and throughout that, uh, the careful designing of the book, right up to outlining the book, my intention was always to tell the book story from two perspectives, from Emmett and Duchess. And every day it would go back and forth. We'd hear from Emmett, and then we'd hear from Duchess, and we'd go back and forth, and sort of as the, the days proceeded. And I got about, uh, maybe I was 25 or 30% of the way into the book, and I was like, it's not enough. Uh, the, the, I knew so much about the internal life of Wooly, of Sally, of Billy, and I felt that the reader deserved to hear from those characters directly. And that if I told the story simply from the perspectives of Duchess and Emmett, I could tell you a lot about those characters, but you'd never really know them like you should know them because you're only gonna get that external perspective. You're not gonna get sort of the internal way of understanding how they think, how they feel, what their memories are, uh, sort of how it influences their actions in the course of the story. So as soon as I thought that, I went back to redesign the whole thing and began kind of at the beginning again and building it around what ultimately was eight different perspectives. Now, when I did that, uh, as Andrew mentions, there's, there are sections, characters, where their section is told in the third person, and there are those in first person. It's actually uh, Duchess and Sally are both first person, and the other six are all in third person. Now, before I answer why that's true, I have to qualify that a little bit, which is that I am not, I have not yet written a novel in the omniscient third person. So for those of you who read A Gentleman in Moscow, uh, you would hopefully you'd recognize or remember that while that is in the third person, the third person is absolutely an extension of the Count's inner life. It's his tone, it's his sense of humor, it's his foibles, it's his memories, it's what he observes. So even though it's third person, it's really his inner life for the vast majority of that book. And uh, so it's similar here in that the six, section, six characters who are all in third person, like Emmett or Wooly, yes, it's in third person, but it really is the internal 
expression of their internal lives, the expression of their internal lives. So the Woolley chapter, hopefully, sounds very different to you than the Emmett chapter, and sound, which sounds very different the, to the Ulysses chapters, you know, as you hear what's kind of going on in their head. Um, so for me, the distance between the third person and first person is actually quite narrow in this regard. Um, so why did suddenly Duchess and Sally end up as first person instead of third person narratives? And that's really because I, I just think that their personalities demanded it. You know, as characters, there was no way they were going to put up with this third person nonsense. <laughs> they have things that they want to say and they don't, they're going to get right to the point themselves, you know. And, then, and so, so then it really just became a matter of feel. Well, and to follow on that, do you like Duchess as a character? Oh, yeah, totally. I think Duchess is awesome. Um, you know, and I would say a bigger thing is, is about it is, um, I think in many ways Duchess is the most uh, charismatic of the, the characters in the book. He's much more charismatic than Emmett, that's for sure. He's dark, um, though, too. Yeah, he is dark. You know, uh, there's some dark aspects of his life. He had a tough, he had a, he had a tough upbringing. You know, the, the, my, my, my vision for, for Duchess kind of began with this weird notion. And, and for those of you who read it, you know, uh, for those of you who don't, haven't read it, Duchess is raised in the Lower East Side of New York uh, by a father. He's, his, his mother died when he was young. And his father is basically a failed uh, stage performer who ended up on vaudeville. And he's sort of a, he's a drinker, quasi-con man, whose sort of last sort of uh, uh, successful stage presence is that he would do Shakespearean monologues uh, on the vaudeville stage, you know, as a sort of a rundown actor in rundown theaters of the time. And uh, I, so I had this notion, wouldn't it be interesting if you had a young man who wasn't very well educated, wasn't, you know, a, a bookish kid, um, and was raised in a tough environment, you know, in the Lower East Side, surrounded by drunks and con men and what have you, and, but his father, Told, gave Shakespearean monologues. So he, as a young person, has heard the Shakespearean monologues thousands and thousands of times. And so he's inherited or you know, received the high language of Shakespeare. He's, you know, the, sort of the, the, the sort of the boldness of it, the, the high confidence of it, the, poet, the poetics of it. And, but what he doesn't really have is the context of the plays. So you know, you get a, a monologuist will get up and do Hamlet, and then we'll do Macbeth. And for the kid, he may not know that one's a hero and one's a villain. You know, they're just both monologues. And so I was sort of like, that's kind of where I began with sort of my invention of, of, of Duchess as a, as a character. Um, but, you know, the other thing I was, I was going to say to you is I think that, um, I, in, in, I do think that for me, and I, I think different authors do this differently, and, and this may even be to a fault of mine, but I do, I think, ultimately go through a process of falling in love with each of the characters that I'm creating. And actually, one of the interesting things that has happened in all three of my novels between draft one and draft three is that in draft one, in all three cases, if you say this are the four central characters, um, the journey from draft one to draft three is the amount of words that are dedicated to the four central characters shrinks. Uh, in that first draft, what is so important uh, in the drafting of it is to make sure that those four characters are fully realized and alive. Um, but inevitably, in doing that, you overplay it. You know, you describe things you don't need to describe. You tell too much about them. You tell too much about what their past is or what they're thinking. Uh, when they have an idea, you go on and on and on about it, like I'm doing right now, you know. <laughs> so, so, so a part of the shift from going from one, two, to three is, is honing that in, reining in the language used to describe those central characters. And, and ironically, or paradoxically is a better word, paradoxically, that m effort to shrink the language dedicated to those four characters actually brings them into sharper relief and brings them into uh, more, more alive. Uh, when they get weighed down with too much, it's almost like squeezing the life out of them. So it's a very important part of this process to win, is to winnow it down. But the other thing that tends to happen is the journey from draft one to draft three, is if you looked at the next, at character five through eight, I'm building them in drafts sec two and three. Because in retrospect, I haven't given them their due. 
I'm so focused on making sure I get those four main characters right and fully realized that I'm kind of sketching the other guys sometimes or not, or not giving them their full, the complexity of their personalities, not giving them a chance to be in as many uh, scenes as they deserve, to speak as often as they should. And so in that journey, I'm kind of expanding them even as I'm shrinking the others. And, and that process is also, to some degree, it requires a falling in love with each of them to a degree that I had not been in love with them yet. You know, where I'm like, I really want to get to know them better and, 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 and bring them to life better uh, through this sort of romance, as it were. So eventually, I love them all. <laughs> and I've heard other authors say this, so I'm interested in you reflecting on it, like the shrinking of that material like gives space for the reader imaginative act as Absolutely. well, right? That's right. part of the, the way in which we enter the book together with you. Correct. Right. So you had some closing oh, remarks, yeah, yeah. I think. I, I did want to sort of share one thing, you know, uh, before we go, and, and that is I wanted to sort of touch on sort of how I think about history in my work a little bit. And, and uh, some, some uh, times people refer to my works, uh, my novels as, as historical fiction or, or me as an historical novelist. And I don't really, I don't mind that, but I don't really think about uh, my work in that way or think of myself in that way. I think of myself as, as a novelist. I'm trying to create, you know, novels of, of, a, literary, uh, of a literary character. And, um, but uh, to give you a sort of sense of, of how I think about history in my work, um, the best way I can do that is by analogy. And the analogy is, I want you to imagine that you are in a theater to see uh, a play. And let, you know, let's say it's uh, uh, Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. That's what you're sitting there about to see. And if you look across the stage, you know, the stage has been set up to look like a wealthy country estate, the living room of a wealthy country estate in Russia. And if you look across the living room, uh, there's French doors at the back of the stage, and through the French doors, you can see the cherry orchard itself in the distance, right? And, uh, which is in bloom right now, it's spring. Um, now, of course, what you are looking at, when you look across the stage through French doors to a cherry orchard in the distance, what you are actually looking at is painted canvas, right? Because that's what happens, um, that's how you build the back of a, of, a, of a set in an opera or of a theatrical experience, is you'll paint this backdrop. Now, when they paint, uh, the cherry orchard to hang behind the French doors. Um, they're going to use the, you know, the tricks of the, of the Renaissance, the techniques of the Renaissance, you know, to give the sense of perspective. Uh, but they're not going to paint it in a hyper-realist style. What they'll do, the stage crew, is they'll paint it in a more of an impressionist style, you know, more like a Renoir or a Monet. Um, because that's what's going to look better to the natural eye. Right? To some degree, it's going to look better because, because it should look a little blurry in the distance you know, when you're looking that far uh, away. But in addition, by using the impressionist technique, what it's going to do is it's going to give sort of the illusion of almost movement of the, 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 the blossoms. You can see the afternoon light glittering off the blossoms. It's almost like a breeze is blowing through it, and that's just perfect. Now, in front of that, in front of this backdrop, uh, on either side of the French doors, what you're going to have is uh, plywood uh, bookshelves that are made out of plywood but painted to look like mahogany. And over here, there's a door that goes nowhere. And here is a staircase that goes to nothing, right? And this the stage crew has built to give us a sense of this uh, living room in the estate. Now, in front of these things, uh, towards the front of the stage, is an actual table surrounded with actual chairs on which there is an actual China tea service. And it is very important that these things be actual. Because let's say that in this scene, a sister is sitting at the table uh, having tea by herself, and the brother sort of comes on stage. He's clearly in high emotion. And when, we want, when he pulls back the chair abruptly, and sits down and pulls himself up to the table, we want to hear the sound of the wooden legs scraping across the wooden surface of the, uh, the stage. And as he starts to share uh, his, you know, what he has to say, when he kind of you know, slaps the table for emphasis, we want to hear the physicality of his palm hitting uh, the surface of the table. And when the sister very patiently puts her china cup down in the saucer, we want to hear the clink, the sort of delicate clink of uh, the cup on the saucer as she puts down her cup patiently, right? Um, and so this is all, it's very important 
as the theater goer that all of this feels very real because this is really where our focus is, is on the interaction between these two characters in this broader setting. Now, this is the way that my work is constructed, right? So for me, history in my novels is the painted backdrop, all right? And when I paint that, I am not going to paint it in a realistic style. I am going to paint it in an impressionist style. Um, I don't want it to be realist. I want it to be impressionist because its goal, its role there is to give you a sense of time, a sense of place, a sense of mood, but that's it. Now in front of that, in my work, is going to be a lot of plywood that's painted to look like mahogany. <laughs> and what I mean by that is all the stuff in my book that it's sharply described moment in time and a place or what have you, an event, and you're reading it and thinking, wait, did that happen? You know, wait, was that an actual restaurant in New York? Or did they really remove the labels from the wine bottles in Moscow? Or is there, were there, did the hobos go on the high line when it began to be abandoned in the 50s? I want you to be not sure if that's real or not. And that's terrific. Okay. But in front of that is the table and chairs. And uh, I want that to be very real to you. I want it to be so real for you that you feel like you are sitting at the table right next to the brother and sister as they have their conversation. That you are sitting there and you are in a position to see the expressions on their faces as they change, to hear the nuances in how they're speaking as they exchange their ideas and their sentiments. And I want that to feel very real to you because that's where the action is. Thank you very much. That was Amor Tolls speaking at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in February 2023. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has just been announced. Speakers include Sadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezakumotato. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Krista Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to the literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>